This morning we talked about the, uh, the three leaders that we saw in Ezra and Nehemiah. We saw Zerubbabel, which means planted in Babylon, representing the generation born in captivity. And Zerubbabel, he, um, he brought the first remnant back in, uh, in the year that Cyrus decreed that they would be, uh, the exiles could go back to Jerusalem. So he brought them back. And as he brought them back, uh, Zerubbabel had his own issues, right? The, there, was, there was a mixed reception of this new temple that he had led them to build. Uh, but then also he was not the unifier that people wanted him to be. And so, uh, so he was not the Messiah, even though he was from the line of David. Then you had Ezra, the great Bible scholar, seeking to rebuild the community of Israel there. And although he knew the Bible well, uh, some of the conclusions, some of the strategies that he drew uh, about the Bible were not of the Lord. The Lord did not command him to do those things. So even good leaders make uh, foolish and sometimes very costly mistakes um, that, uh, that have widespread ramifications. And Malachi spoke into the people there, and, and that was why the Lord was not receiving their offerings, or that was why the Lord was not honoring their, their supposed repentance, was because they had forsaken uh, the marriage covenant and, uh, and followed that, that bad counsel from, from Ezra. And then, so Ezra was not the Messiah. Then you had Nehemiah. Nehemiah uh, had a great political strategy for Jerusalem to rebuild the wall, and, and God raised him up and, and provided for him immensely, and he did some incredible things. I mean, the, the fact that they completed the wall in the shortest time as they did, it showed great unity, and that's why Nehemiah is held up as a, a visionary leader, right? But like we said, we've never seen it at the, as one of the principles in a, a John Maxwell book that good leadership is beating and cursing at your people and pulling their hair out, which is the way Nehemiah ended. Uh, and so Nehemiah is not the Messiah. And, and so uh, that's what we talked about this morning. And this evening we want to dive into the books before Ezra, First and Second Chronicles, because, uh, and you'll learn this a little bit more in a moment, but First and Second Chronicles were also one book in the original Hebrew Bible, and they also came at the very end of the Old Testament. Uh, and I'll tell you why in a moment. But before that, I want to introduce you uh, to the toothfish. Very beautiful fish, as you can tell, not scary at all. I'm glad my kids aren't in here. They might have nightmares about that tonight. In 1977, a fish merchant named Lee Lance uh, traveled to Chile and discovered the toothfish. It was a species the locals deemed too oily to eat. But 30, 30 years later, and a name change, Chilean sea bass is so popular with American palates that it's almost on the verge of extinction. All it took was the name change. From Chilean seba, I mean from a toothfish, very piranha-looking thing, to Chilean sea bass. Uh, additionally, after Canadians developed an oil from the rape seed plant, you can imagine why that name didn't go far. So in 1988, the FDA approved a name change to anybody? Huh? Anybody want to take a guess what it is? Canola oil. That's exactly right. You've won today's uh, Jeopardy uh, round. Uh, they changed it to canola oil and sales shot up. Uh, additionally, when the California Prune Board realized that prune and laxative were inextricably linked, they switched to dried plums in 2000. People bought it, and in a documented focus group preferred the taste of dried plums to prunes, even though they're the exact same thing. 
In the 1960s, Frida Kaplan, an American produce importer, changed the name of the Chinese gooseberry to anybody? The kiwi fruit. Kiwi fruit after New Zealand's national bird, which is also round, uh, brown and furry. And popularity spiked, and if you have them in the Johnson household, they don't last too long at all. Even the bony fish known as the dolphin fish was unrelated to the mammal of the same name, and uh, diners still balked at ordering it. So in the mid-1980s, restaurants started using its Hawaiian name, which is mahi-mahi, that's right, and all thoughts of flipper were forgotten. And to bring it even closer to home, college football season will start here soon. And I know that I'm, I have not, I'm not seen it, but I know at the beginning of every Auburn game, you can guarantee that they're going to have some video replaying all the major plays and victories going all the way back to the first video footage that they have, right? Pat Sullivan, bow over the top, punt, bam, a punt, Nick's to Sanders, the cam back, the miracle of Jordan Hare, kick six, and more like it, right? Uh, Alabama has their own version of these. We have this guy, right, uh, named... Named? Oh, oh, sorry, new projector, donate. Uh, Daniel Moore, that's right, Daniel Moore. Yeah, that, you can see it back there, that's Daniel Moore. That is a, that's a horrible picture, yeah. Uh, Daniel Moore, right, Daniel Moore, and, and Alabama doesn't have to have names for their past victories, they just show the rings and the national championship trophies. I joke with Ron about that all the time. Uh, why do they do this? Why is it, why is it that we can go to Disney World and pay, I don't even know how much current ticket prices are, probably over $100 a piece, for them to do what? To tell us the same story again, just in a different way, right? I mean, genius business model, right? You go in and you're like, you don't, you don't see a new story. You're like, I want to ride a, roll, a Snow White-themed roller coaster. I've seen Snow White, right? And I know there's seven dwarves, and I know they're all funny and all that kind of stuff, but why am I going to sit in line for how many hours, two hours, three hours, to ride a roller coaster that all it's going to do is tell me the same story, right? D Disney, uh, I, we could go on and on about Disney. Disney has masterfully captured this idea that stories shape who we are. And they found such a way to tell stories, as well as Auburn and Alabama and, and all of these other things. They found a way to tell stories in such a way that we're attracted over and over again because it connects to something about our identity. And that's the power of stories. That's, 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 why, that's why all those little name changes, that they had to go through those because they recognized that these things were linked to something negative. And so if we can change it and we can actually link it to something positive, then it will become a part of who people are, at least a part of their lives, which is how you make money, right? And so that's what they did. And Auburn and Alabama both will be a test. I mean, if you go to a game this year, just, wa just wait for it. They'll show the same video every week, and people will go crazy every week because they connect with it so much. And that's why First and Second Corinthians and Ezra and Nehemiah were originally uh, two, just two individual books. Is because... Ezra and Nehemiah was more, most likely written by Ezra, as well as First and Second Chronicles most likely written by Ezra. And what he was trying to do was shape Jewish identity by retelling the story of Israel's history. That's why it comes at the end of the Old Testament in the, in the Hebrew Bible. It was because for that generation that, that mourned and wailed at the Watergate, 
For those people that were, that were hearing uh, with, a, with a refreshed vigor this word being preached by Ezra, I'm sure Ezra developed a, a way to retell the story about what God had done for the people with the hope that it would, it would do something in those people, that it would, it would connect them to their Jewish identity. And that's why I really, I really, if I could be honest with you, I can understand why it's placed where it is after 2 Kings, but I really don't like it there. Because if you're ever reading through the Bible in a year, right, and you read through First and Second Samuel, and you read about Saul, Samuel, Saul, David, and then you get into First and Second Kings, and you read about Solomon and all these other kings, and then you get to First and Second Chronicles, you're like, oh, well, that's just like a repeat for some reason. We don't know why they put it in there, uh, and 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 you might be tempted to skip over it. But the fact of the matter is, is that this book was put there to shape the identity of these post. They're called post-exilic Hebrews. This was after they'd come back from exile in Babylon, and they were the ones who were supposed to be starting a new culture with a new temple and a new Jerusalem, and, um, and this was supposed to shape their identity. But seeing uh, what the author includes in this book and what he doesn't include and what he adds reveals that his goal is to create, his goal is to create hope for two things. First of all, the coming Messiah, and secondly, hope for the future of the temple. And so First and Second Chronicles can be broken down really into three sections. And if you have your uh, little graphic from this morning, you can kind of see an illustration of these sections here. Um, First and Second Chronicles broken down into three sections, two of them being in First Chronicles. And so we're just going to go through those sections so that you can kind of see that all of it is per, uh, purposeful. Now, if you open up to the First Chronicles chapter 1 and, and you're like me, you immediately start seeing all these names that you can't pronounce. And it, it might drive you crazy that you can't pronounce these names. And you might say, well, that, I really don't know why that's there. And so we just skip over it. But these genealogies, these long lists of names, even though people may think they're kind of boring and maybe they really are, they're actually very, very important because what the author is doing is summarizing the entire storyline of the Old Testament. Because look at the first name listed. What's the first name there in First Chronicles 1-1? Yeah, Adam. That's the Adam back in the Garden of Eden, Adam, right? And so he, this, this scribe or this person, we, we're pretty sure it's Ezra, is tracing Jewish heritage all the way back to the first human being, the Garden of Eden, which shows that, uh, that people in the Old Testament did not look at Adam as a non-historical uh, slash mythical figure. They looked at him as a real person who had real kids and grandkids and great-great-grandkids and so on and so forth and so on. Adam was a real person. Adam was the federal head of all humanity. And so he goes down and begins to list out these genealogies, connecting them uh, for a purpose. And that right before, it's, a, it's a verse 27, he connects them to Abraham. And then he goes from Abraham to Jacob. And then he goes all the way down to the kings who reign in the land of Edom and all the way down to the chiefs of Edom, and that's the end of chapter 1. And so these genealogies, they emphasize two key lineages. First of all is the promised messianic king. The promised messianic king. 
These lineage, that's, that's why chapter 2 begins with the genealogy of David, because he wanted to get the idea of a king, uh, kingship in the mind of the people who are reading this, maybe thinking about this for the first time. And he wanted them to understand that David is the, he is the, the line of Judah, and that line of Judah is the one to whom the Messiah would come. The Messianic promise was given to David, and the author traces it all the way up to his day. That's why chapter 3 is the descendants of David. Chapter 4 is the descendants of Judah, descendants of Simeon, Reuben, Gad. Into chapter 6, the, uh, the Levites, uh, Issachar. In chapter 7, Manasseh, uh, Ephraim. Chapter 8, the genealogy of Saul. You see where we're headed now. Uh, and then it, it goes all the way into the tribe of Benjamin. All these were Benjaminites is the last verse of chapter 8. But secondly, he is going to emphasize the lineage of the priesthood. And these, that's why these chapters are important. And once again, we get lost in just reading the names. It's helpful to have somebody to point these things out for us. We look, first of all, at this, uh, the promised messianic king coming from the line of David and then the lineage of the priesthood and the priesthood representing this temple, the hope for a temple. God has not given up on these two promises that he's made. You remember this promise of a temple reflects back to the book of Leviticus. And if you remember, and this is what I love about the story as we've seen it so far, in the, at the end of the book of Exodus, God had given Moses instructions for how to build the tabernacle. But there was a problem, that when the glory descended upon the tabernacle, at the center of the camp there, Moses couldn't enter in. This tabernacle is at the center of everything. The presence of God is meant to be the center of the entire Jewish existence. And yet Moses can't enter in? And that's why the book of Leviticus is given so that it's these, these, uh, these uh, ritual cleansings are given so that there's this conception of holiness by which we enter into the presence of God, this, this idea of sacrifice uh, by which we enter into the presence of God. And this priesthood, this priesthood represents the reality, and that's what chapter 9 is about, the reality that we have been invited into the presence of God of Almighty God. And so you get to the, the chapter 10, and it's the sec- second section of First Chronicles. Now, this is really, really interesting. And once again, you're not going to get this by just reading through the Bible, reading through these books. So First Chronicles, the second section, is chapters 10 through 29, and these are just stories about David. So look at it. Chapter 11, David anointed king. David takes Jerusalem. I'm just going by the subheadings here. David's mighty men. The mighty men joined David, chapter 12, and keep going. The ark brought from Kiriath-Jerim, in chapter 14, David's wives and children, the Philistines defeated. And so you have all of these stories about David, and here's, here's like, we'll get to um, uh, chapter 15, the ark brought to Jerusalem, chapter 16, the ark placed in a tent, uh, the Lord's covenant with David, David's prayer, What's missing here are all the negative stories about David. It's never never mentioned about Saul trying to kill David. It's never mentioned here about David committing adultery with Bathsheba and murdering Uriah. These things are, 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 I wouldn't say glossed over or overlooked necessarily, they're just left out. Because... The writer here wants people to understand that David was the good guy in the story, so to speak. 
that he was the one to whom the promise was given. But there's also additional material. Turn to chapter 22, for instance. Chapter 22. And we think, you remember, David went to God and said, I want to build you a temple, and God said no. But what First Chronicles adds is chapters 22 through, through 29. Let's just look at the subheadings here. David prepares for the temple building. Solomon charged to build a temple. But David, chapter 23, organizes the Levites. In chapter 24, David organizes the priests. And then you go through and you have chapter 25, David organizes the musicians. Uh, 26, the gatekeepers, uh, treasurers and other officials. And then the military divisions, the leaders of the tribes, and David's charge to Israel, David's charge to Solomon. All of this is extra information not included in 2 Samuel or, or even 1 Kings for that matter. None of these things are included. These are extra stories about David. In chapter uh, 28, look at verse 11. Look at verse 11 of chapter 28. It says, Then David gave Solomon his son the plan of the vestibule of the temple, and of its houses, its treasuries, and its upper rooms, and its inner chambers, and of the room for the mercy seat. We had no idea that David came up with all, or was given all this. And the plan of all that he had in mind for the courts of the house of the Lord, all the surrounding chambers, the treasuries of the house of God, and the treasuries for dedicated gifts, for the divisions of the priests and of the Levites, and all the work of the service in the house of the Lord, for all the vessels for the service in the house of the Lord, for the weight of gold, all those specific weights, they came from David for all the golden vessels from each service, the weight of silver vessels, the weight of golden lampstands of their lamps, the weight of, I mean, you see going on and on and on and on. Uh, verse 17, pure gold for the forks. Verse 18, the altar of the incense made from refined gold. And verse 19, finally, all this he made clear to me in writing from the hand of the Lord. All the work to be done according to the plan. David in First Chronicles is portrayed as a Moses-like leader where God, just as he gave the plans of the tabernacle to Moses, now God gives, them, gives the plans for the temple to David. Why would the author do this? Is he just pro-David and wanting to ignore his flaws? I mean, absolutely not. He knew they could read about them in, in Samuel. Rather, he is trying to portray David as the ideal king so that he can show him as the image of the future messianic king. You see, for the, for the Jewish mind, archetypes are important. Images that, that are meant to shape the mind so that they would know what to look for in the future. And that's what First Chronicles sets David up as. And this is most clear when the author retells the story of God's covenant promise to David in First Chronicles 17. He highlights that neither David nor Solomon nor any of the kings from his line were the messianic king, and that when the Messiah does come, he will be a king like David. And for this author, the stories about David from the past sustain his hope for the future. And that's one reason that he wrote about David the way that he did. But let's go into 2 Chronicles now. 2 Chronicles chapter 1 begins with Solomon. David dies. And this, uh, this narrative of Second Chronicles focuses on the kings that lived in Jerusalem. Now, once again, there's lots of overlapping stories with First and Second Kings, but there are many key differences. For instance, we know that when Solomon's son Rehoboam came into power, that the kingdom split, right? You had the northern kingdom led by Jeroboam, and then you had the southern kingdom where Jerusalem and the temple resided, and that was called Judah, and it was led by Solomon's son Rehoboam. 
Well, remember we talked about that all of the kings of the north were evil. And that's why they fell first. They fell to Assyria. Well, 2 Chronicles brings out, I mean, 2 Chronicles leaves out every one of those kings from the north. Just ignore them, right? <laughs> ignore them. They were, they were rebels, and all of them were evil. And he focuses instead on the line of David, where there's lots of new material about kings from David's line. So skip past... Um, this is where we get the uh, verse seven. I mean, the chapter seven when uh, when Solomon is dedicating the temple and uh, and it, the, if my people pray uh, is uh, is something new. You get uh, chapters eight and nine, but then you get the revolt against Rehoboam in chapter ten, and you get all of these uh, pictures of Rehoboam. Rehoboam secures his kingdom. Chapter eleven, then chapter twelve when Egypt comes and plunders Jerusalem. Chapter thirteen. Don't have any of these, any of this information. If you, in fact, if you want to, if you want to do something different for your Bible reading next year, get a chronological Bible, because what the chronological Bible is going to do. So, like, look at chapter thirteen, Second uh, Chronicles thirteen. This this Abijah reigns in Judah, and it gives much more information about Abijah, right? And so you don't get that from First and Second King. I mean, uh, from uh, from Second Kings, and so. If you read the Bible chronologically, if you have a, a, a chronological Bible that'll put it, put the text in between, it'll kind of splice it up, and and you'll read about Abijah in Second Kings, and then it'll add in that text uh, from Second Chronicles so that you get the full picture. You're not you're not reading it later on when you've already forgotten who in the world uh, Abijah is. And so there are lots of new material about the kings from David's from David's line, and he highlights one thing. And I think this is important for us to, to recognize about Second Chronicles. Because he's trying, once again, he's trying to shape the Jewish understanding of, of thought. He says to them that these kings were successful and they had God's blessing because they obeyed. Obedience and blessing are inextricably connected in Second Chronicles and in Jewish thought going forward from this place. He also adds new stories about kings that were unfaithful to God to show the opposite. They didn't follow the Torah and they led their people to worship idols and they faced horrible consequences that ultimately led them into exile. And so as you continue on into Second Chronicles, the section is basically a long list of character studies where the author wants later generations of Israelites to learn from their family history. And so become faithful to God and the Torah. But turn all the way to the end of the book, chapter 36. 2 Chronicles 36. Second Chronicles 36, 17 through 21 deals with how Jerusalem was captured. So Babylon comes in, they, they burn Jerusalem, they capture the Israelites... And it says, to fulfill, this is verse 21, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. And then it jumps into where we started in Ezra this morning. Verse 22, now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, if you look 
in my in mind, it's the opposing page. If you look at the paragraph right in Ezra chapter one, this is why Second Chronicles ends right here and and Ezra begins. And this is a lot of the reason that we think that Ezra might have written First and Second Chronicles because the wording there is almost identical, right? Except, except as it ends in verse twenty three in Second Chronicles, it ends with an incomplete sentence. It says, it says, the last line of the book says, whoever there is among, is among you, all of his people, may the Lord be with him and let him go up. And that's how the book ends. Just let him go up. And so the author clearly knows about the return of the exiles under Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. But the messianic promises that God had given to his people were clearly not fulfilled in these events that happened in Ezra and Nehemiah, in these leaders. And so the book of Chronicles is the final book of the Jewish scriptures that ends by pointing forward. And it calls people to look back in order to look ahead because the past has become the source of the hope of their hope for the future. And this is, this is why they put it here. And it's also why they put the minor prophets at the end so that the last words of the Old Testament would be the book of Malachi. So I want you to, to turn all the way forward to the book of Malachi. And specifically go to the last chapter, Malachi chapter 4. Because what, what happened after Ezra wrote First and Second Chronicles and emphasized obedience as the source of God's blessing, the people of Israel did what they typically did. And they took it too far, right? We've already seen that with Ezra this morning. Uh, we've seen that in the book of Judges. We've seen people be be, uh, be hyper-literal with God's Word and take it too far. And so in Malachi's day, that's where you had all of these different groups rise up and emphasize external obedience to the law. Like who? Who was around in Jesus' day that were so committed to the external obedience of the law? Pharisees. Guess when they found their origin? Malachi. And so Ezra did a great job shaping the Jewish identity and making them long for the Messiah. And the people of Israel just took a little bit of that and said, well, if we obey externally, then we'll be blessed and the Messiah will come and he'll reward us and we'll be, we'll, everything will be awesome because he'll come and he'll deliver us from our oppressors. He'll kill all of our enemies and then we'll be good. That's all that God wants from us is this external blessing. And so you had people like the Pharisees arise and Jesus will deal with them very clearly in the New Testament. And so... The minor prophets are at the end of our Old Testament because of what happens in chapter 4. And this is just where, like, when I read this, I still remember reading this for the first time as a new Christian and just being blown away. Because I knew what was coming, right? I knew, I knew what was coming in, in the Gospel of Matthew, right? But look at what it says. For behold, chapter, chapter 1 of verse 4, I mean, uh, verse 1 of chapter 4. For behold, the day is coming. Burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. And here's a fun picture. You shall go out leaping like calves from a stall. Some of you will have to take me out and see some calves leaping at some point in time. I think that would be a cool picture. 
And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on that day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. So Malachi does what, he do, does what most of the minor prophets did, and they, he points them to the, the day, the day of the Lord, which the day is not a day. The day is a period of time that we recognize was initiated in the coming of Jesus and has culminated in the second coming of Jesus. So we're, we're in, one, in one sense, we're in the day of the Lord right now. We're, we're living in that already not yet, that Jesus has come, but he's coming again, right? And so he tells them, verse 4, to remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. Pharisees just plucked that right out and said, yes, we'll do that. But then he says, behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Who was John the Baptist compared to? Elijah, right? And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And so understanding this as we do in the Jewish mindset, as much as we can, Malachi is foreseeing this day when the sun will rise, that the S-U-N will rise. And, and, and for those who obey the S-O-N son, there will be righteousness that is imparted to them. And it will heal them. Now, it's a really cool thing about, about the son, the S-U-N son, right? I don't know if you all kept up with the news this past week, but they just launched this new vessel that's going to actually get closer to the sun than, than we've ever gotten before. And it's gonna, I think it's going to do like, tw- like 24 orbits. It's this new carbon that's not going to be susceptible to the extreme heat. Because if you or, you or I went as close as that thing's going to go, we would melt like wax, right? And so we think about how awesome it is that this thing, that if we got too close to it, would be deadly for us that because we are the right distance away from it actually brings us life. Right? You think about it, we, there would be no life on this earth without the sun. And in the same way, what Malachi is saying is that the sun of righteousness will one day rise upon you, that this righteousness that you remember that in the Old Testament, we just read, we just looked over in Second Chronicles about this guy named Uzziah, right, who accidentally touched the ark of the Lord, and what happened to him? Died right there on the spot. And so in the Old Testament, you got too close to that sun, you're dead. But there's coming a day when the sun will rise among you, and it's not for the wrath to be poured out, but instead it's for healing and life to come for those who obey, which Jesus in John chapter 6 said, to obey is to do the work of the Lord, which is to believe. And he will be preceded by a prophet as, that was like Elijah. And it was said even of John the Baptist, he quoted himself, that he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. And then there's silence for 400 years. Because God saw the way that they responded to Ezra and Nehemiah, God saw the way that at the end of Nehemiah's ministry that they had just abandoned, they, they'd had this, this, uh, this temporary repentance at, the, at Nehemiah chapter 8, and then after that it just went cold. 
And they began forsaking the covenant all over again. And so God says, I've had enough. I've sent you my prophets. I've, I've identified your problem. And so you've rejected them. Now there's going to be silence. And when the son of righteousness rises, he will heal you by giving you a new heart and a new mind and new desires and new eyes and new ears so that you can see and hear the good news about who I am. And the Old Testament ends. And, and actually next week, the reason that we're doing Esther last is because we, th- we, we don't know exactly when the book of Esther was written, by gauge, but gauging by when the uh, king... Uh, who the king is when uh, when when Esther's written? We think that it was probably somebody uh, in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, because that king Artaxerxes is the same Artaxerxes. There's no kind of number beside it identifying who that is. But we recognize that not all of the exiles went back to Jerusalem; that some of them stayed there. And Esther is the miraculous story about how God keeps his promises to them and saves them in the midst of a horrible situation. And, and what's funny is, is that the book of Esther kind of shows us that God really just does what he wants to do. And we need to be okay with that because Esther and Mordecai are not very honest people. They actually commit some deceit and, and yet God miraculously provides for them. Why? Because God shows mercy to whom he will show mercy, and he has compassion on whom he will have compassion. And it's not, it's, it's not our good deeds that make him draw near and keep his promises. It's because of the goodness that is within his own love and character that he keeps his promises to us. And so as we, as we, as we come to a, a close, and I, I hope maybe some of you are wondering, I, I mentioned we were going to pray tonight. That's actually how we're going to end is because I think one of the things that we need to emphasize is our culture gets the fact that the stories we tell shape who we are. And we've seen it all the way back from, the, from Deuteronomy about God giving us this command that if, if there's one of the most basic things that we need to be doing, we should be talking about the goodness and loving kindness and character of God just in our normal conversation. And as you do that, it shapes that story, that, that true story, that real story shapes who you are. It shapes everything about your life. And so God's calling us to be people who are continually telling that same old, old story. Just like the hymn writer said, I love to tell this story. I love to talk about this creator. I love to, I love to rejoice and, and extol the goodness and, and loving kindness of God, my Savior. I, I love to tell of the mercy of Jesus. I love to talk about who he is with my kids or with my coworkers or my family or, or whoever it may be. Just talking about who he is should be a core component of who we are. But the reason that that's so poignant for us, even on nights like tonight, is because God's story is still shaping us. There's a, there's a popular, um, or it's a mainstream denomination called the United Church of Christ. And uh, they're a real big pro-LGBT uh, denomination. And, uh, and their, their infamous statement is, never put a period where God has put a comma. And they say, God is still speaking. And, and essentially, they mean God's evolving on the issues that are 
you know, going on today. Um, God changes his mind and all those kinds of things. Very, very sad. Um, but I think one of the, one of the things that they fail to do that we don't need to fail to do is to recognize that God is still speaking, not writing new, new parts of the Bible or not over, overturning parts of the Bible that he's already said. But the way God is speaking today is that he's using his story, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, to define our story. And we so desperately need that. It's for his promises and his character, the steadfastness, the, 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 time, uh, or the timeless and tested character of our Almighty God to continually be defining the moment that we're in rather than our moment being defined by what's going on around us. Because if we let what's going on around us define our moment, then we will be in chaos. But if we let God define the moment that we are in, then we will not only have peace, but we'll have understanding and hope. And so with that in mind, the, the invitation for us tonight is to pray for our brothers and sisters, pray for ourselves, that we would not just espouse this kind of, you know, give this kind of verbal profession that, yeah, that's what we believe, but that we would do it. We would actually walk in that. And that we would be reminding ourselves of the character of God when we're walking through dark times.